What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Philadelphia rock band The Hooters had several arena rock hits in the 80s. All You Zombies, And We Danced, Where Did the Children Go? But before they were stars, they were a local ska band. In fact, the original Hooters were one of the first ska bands in the U.S. And while the group were still in their ska phase, they also worked with Cyndi Lauper on her debut record, She's So Unusual. Dig up some of the early demos for that album on YouTube and you'll be surprised at the ska and reggae grooves found in those songs. Today we tell the story of the Hooters ska period with band members Eric Bazilian and Rob Hyman. And we absolutely discuss the making of Cyndi Lauper's landmark almost ska pop album as well. Okay, going into this one, I gotta admit I was unfamiliar with the Hooters. However, we learned during this that they helped write so many songs that make up the fabric of my reality. They also, I mean, they, as a band, they were so big in the eighties, like for rock and roll. Yeah. And there's the, the ska period of the Hooters was not as well known as their rock and roll period in the eighties and nineties. So it was an important part of their development as a band. Every band should have a ska period. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be the first period. No. Yeah. It can be uh, 15 years into the band. You can go ska. 20 years into the band. 20 there into the band. Start out playing rock and roll and then turn into a ska band. I like that. Yeah. That's what we propose going forward. Every band, put, just put out a ska album, wherever you are in your career. Just do it. The first thing I want to talk about is um, there was a photo, Catbite or, or Eric? I can't remember. You got, there was a photo posted of Catbite and you, Eric. Yeah. Yep. And I asked, I asked Catbite about it. They said that they had, uh, they had tweeted that the... Their favorite local ska band, they're from Philadelphia, as well as you guys, was the Hooters. And that, um, that I assume, then you saw this tweet, and then you invited them to come, come see you guys play. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I, I had heard of them, but I had never really checked them out. And I checked them out and like, wow, this is a real good band. And um, I just started started uh, tweeting, uh, DMing them and invited them to the show. And they were awesome. They were so nice. And, you know, like, it's, you know, it's just amazing that this next generation, they know about us because, you know, I mean, our ska phase has sort of come and gone and come and gone. So I didn't didn't know that we were really regarded as that, but it actually started a whole chain reaction. Yeah, because your ska phase is like the 80s, not even the 90s. Right, right. I mean, we really, you know, I guess Rob and I went and saw Madness, and I think it was at the Hot Club in like 79 or, or 80. And that was it. It was like seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. <laughs> so Catbite, or I think it was Tim from Catbite, told me that um, at the show that he saw, which was recent, I, I think that's this year, um, you guys played a specials cover and then you had a, a brand new ska song in addition to your older material. Yep, that's right. And and there's more to come, we think. First off, what's your specials cover that you're doing? Uh, Rudy, message to Rudy. And that came about, we actually had a horn section too, which was really fun. We, we had done that 40 years ago, actually found some cassettes of that, uh, those days in the band, and we recreated that uh, with the horn section. And the funny thing about Rudy is we were on tour in uh, Germany last summer, and our, one of our longtime crew guys who drives the truck is named Rudy, R-U-D-I. <laughs> but had never heard the song. And we were back one day just singing some of the crew knew it and he didn't. So we had to, you know, present it. I think one of the sound checks actually put it on as I walk on or walk off music. So it was a little personal inspiration to dig back, but we always loved the track. I don't think we, if we played it, it kind of came and went. Yeah, no, we never played that. We tried, we played just about every known ska song from that era back in the day, but I don't think we ever did that one. What else were you guys covering back then? English beat. We we did um we did your best friend from the from the first beat album. Nice. And and a lot of satellites at the very going back to the very beginning. The first thing we ever got the first airplay we ever got in Philly was uh, a version of Man in the Street by Satellites. And and then also off there was a, a great Trojan. It's a three record vinyl uh, collection. I think it was called the Trojan Story, and it was awesome still is awesome um and we did soon you'll be gone which was by the blues busters kind of the jamaican sam and dave they were a duo and a bunch of other things just can't figure out some reggae stuff but you know the israelites we did the israelites nice. israelites good version of that um and then you know we would take uh, other uh, for your love by the yardbirds we scoured that out and it was a whole night of this we used to call it the skanking army hard <laughs> dog. Or, you know, fans would come, and if you look, there's stuff on YouTube. It's, some of it's a little cringy to look, <laughs> but the music was not, you know. I mean, some of the get-ups and hairdos, whatever. But we had we had a, a lot of upbeats all night long. So the, this new song that Tim mentioned. Yeah. When did you write this new Scott song? In the spring. Yeah, recently. It, it took a while, uh, and it just kind of landed in that direction. And then we, we just, yeah, we played this. Uh, theater outside Philly called the Keswick, and we uh, every November or early fall, uh, mid fall, and uh, we debuted it with the horns. And Eric plays sax in the band as well, but we had a horn section as to to uh, augment the sound, and it was it was mighty. It felt great. What's the name of the song? Why won't you call me back? Was there an inspiration behind playing Scoggin? 
you know, I've been I've been sort of pushing for it for a while um, because our drummer David was sick and that's his superpower. It's like when we when we when he first joined the band, he was a a rock drummer. He I don't think he'd ever heard of ska or reggae, but it was like he was born to to do that. You know, to he could do the the kick drum on on uh, on two and four thing, and he could do that side stick, the crazy side stick thing with the quarter note kick drum, and mm-hmm. that's still his superpower. And you know, to to I I just wanted to give him a chance to do that again. And the challenge was, and you know, and Rob pointed this out, and I think it was very, very, um, a very uh, astute, is that we didn't want to be going back in time. If right. we're gonna, if we're gonna start doing doing more ska and reggae, it, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be an evolution rather than a rather than than a um, a regression. A regression. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, this song just sort of evolved, and and we realized, yep, this is this is the poster child for whatever the next phase may be. So, okay, so we're, it's 2021 and it's 2022. The Hooters play, audience comes, you go through your set. When you get to the couple ska songs, what is the audience reaction? They start throwing things. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. A thick cloud of smoke. Yeah, well, the audience is a mix too. I mean, we think about this all the time because there are the hardcore fans that remember this version of the band, which was a very different version of the band. It was it was yeah. ska, reggae, rock all night long, and now we you know we have morphed in over the years, and the audience has changed, etc. So there's some hardcore fans usually in the front row that go all the way back, and then there's honestly kids coming. You know, kids meaning their kids or just a younger generation. So it's all new to them. But I think whether they even know it as ska or not, it, it's kind of like all our stuff. Like we 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 really have mixed a lot of sounds and genres together, and yeah, it's the bottom line is the songs and the performance. Like the the band live, forty plus years, we're still we feel like it's better than ever. You know, we work hard to keep it at that level, but we've refined it and we've really tweaked it. We're now a six piece, and so we're always a five piece. And with six, you know, guys on hand, we can just do a lot more sonically and vocally so um it's just the sound that we've had and it has evolved but there are those that go all the way back and then there's some that are new but you know as dick clark said if it's got a good beat you know if you can dance to it kind of thing so and it did affect the horn it really it was almost to the day 40 years since we had done this way back when we used to play a club in south philly we have a kind of a residency there and other clubs as well where we tried out the horns we recently found a cassette of that show uh, to the day, uh, November 5th, 1982. And we're doing some of the same songs. Well, at least Man in the Street, et cetera. So uh, people dug it. You know, it's timeless. Yeah. I want to go back to the very beginning. So most bands from your era, like, and you mentioned this, you saw Madness. It was, it was a huge moment for you as a band. But Rob, you go back even further with Ska. I think this is unusual for a lot of U.S. people who started Ska bands in the 80s. You you discovered Scott in the '60s as a child from a family vacation to Jamaica. I did. <laughs> it was very formative. Uh, it, a friend of my dad's. I grew up in Meriden, Connecticut, a little town up in New England, and, and you know it's cold, it's winter. And a friend of my dad's, uh, a schoolmate of his, I think, uh, had a small hotel in Montego Bay. He was partners in, it. and it was kind of funky, but it was in Jamaica way back when. And uh, a partner, and and this guy found a property 
um, and invited us down for a Christmas vacation. Um, five of us in my family had an older sister and I had a younger brother. And it was like, okay, Christmas, we're going to Jamaica. And it was really, I keep saying, it was like going to the moon. It was just, you get off the plane, it was hot and humid. You get this blast. You see these Rastas dressed up like Santa Claus. I hear these Christmas carols being sung in these crazy beats that I found out later what it was, et cetera. So it was a whole new world, still very much English uh, influence in terms of there was like shillings and pence and money. So it was very foreign, very strange and a lot of fun. And their property, in fact, the friend of, of the friend uh, had this house high on top of this hill overlooking Montego Bay. I mean, it's an incredible property. I think it's now a school or a monastery or something. But back in the day, it was a home. We went and, you know, we drove around. We rented this tiny little car crowded in the in a little stick shift. And we started hearing this music on the radio. And there was one song in particular called Sammy Dead that was a big hit. And we didn't understand the words, but it had a real catchy chorus and this crazy beat. And so while I was listening to, I guess, Beatles and Stones, you know, mid it was like mid-60s, um, being doing the rock thing as we all were in of our generation, I heard this crazy mixed up music, you know, down there mixed up in terms of the, you know, the rhythms and the beats and it caught my ear. So we, I kind of was on a quest to find Sammy dead and, uh, and I did, it was like, there was a little gift shop that sold some records and I bought an album called Scott Authentic by the Scottalites, which I still have and cherish to this day. And the cover was awesome because it shows the guys in the studio. And a lot of times there were just graphics and, you know, some kind of visual thing. But, you know, for us, and I'm sure for Eric, once we started getting into rock music, it was all about the liner notes and the pictures and what really goes on. We were already into that level of, you know, what does a producer do and who played on this, and et cetera. So the cover is these guys, the band in this, it had to be hot. They were sweating away. You know, I just imagine the sessions down there um and they're just playing live in the studio it was kind of like hitsville of detroit or something one of those scenes found the album with sammy dead and it's a compilation uh tommy mccook and uh, lee perry a very fresh cut <laughs> clean cut lee perry was on there um delroy wilson the maytals it was like a, a just a compilation of all these songs i guess basically backed up by Scottalites. I was looking up the Sammy Dead, and uh, I think there's different versions, but I think Eric Monty Morris is the one I, I found to be yes. probably the most common. That's the one that you heard? I think so, yeah. It had this great uh, intro, uh, this horn line. And then, Sammy Dead in Nicoli. And yeah, there's different versions. You need the version where the background go, because we would drive around in the car and just sing along. You know, my brother was, I think, seven or eight. I was in my teens, early teens. It was just a funny, crazy thing. And honestly, the rest is history. Kept going back. We went back to this particular hotel several years in a row for Christmas. It was really fun and then kind of moved on and then been going down and collecting albums ever since. A lot of vinyl from some late great stores. So you found there was one store in Montego Bay that was not in the tourist part of the town called Clappers that used to frequent in the 70s? Yes, I did. And they would stamp their name, you know, it's like the, the, the we'd get 45s or, or albums. I would eventually just venture into Montego Bay clearly like the only tourists back then. I mean, since those years, they built a, 
a dock for cruise ships and all this stuff. But way back when, it was like nobody, most tourists didn't go into the city of Montego or beyond. And we actually explored the island pretty extensively because another friend had written a, a book about uh, driving uh, and, and maps all over. He had explored, another American had explored the whole island. So we had this book of different places to go. Went out to Negril before it was even Negril. There was literally one hotel that was just getting started. And uh, the rest is history there too. So I would kind of venture around and, and yeah, picked up records. I'd walk into the shop and they would, I'd say, what's out? And they would just start, like the old days, they even like record shops here, I guess. They'd just say, oh, check out this, check out that. There'd be a whole counter full of 45s and albums. And I would take as much as I could afford, especially into my later years, uh, you know, and then the whalers. Then everyone started to hit. But I came at it from the, the early days, you know, before it turned into reggae and all of that. Did, do you still have any of those 45s that you collected from those days? Many of them. Yeah. It's very cherished. I have some great ones. Name a couple prized possessions from, the, from this era. Um, oh, wow. Um, I will have a jukebox, too, which is now sadly broken. But I had a whole section of the 45s that are in the jukebox. Um, Barrington Levy, Prison Oval Rock was a good one. Prince Buster, uh, original Madness single. Um, then it got into, well, stuff we started to cover, which was Michigan and Smiley, Nice Up the Dance, some Bunny Whaler, some Reggae, or some some Bob Marley. Um, the early ska stuff was really, really just, it was already starting to morph into reggae-ness, but um, I still have a lot of vinyl. Yeah, um, it's Justin Hines and the Dominoes, Heptones. I don't know. Uh, it's it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, good stuff, especially the 45s. They had such a sound. Sometimes they're printed off center. They had funky labels. They had this little stamper. They would put clappers on there. And uh, I went back many years later. Apparently, it, it, it's somewhere they said the store was still there a couple years ago because I've been going back lately as well. And the store was gone, but I found some cds that that were really old vinyl that were kind of digitized and stuff so it's amazing how much stuff there's like any you know genre there's it's a deep well there's a lot of stuff still to discover so rob rob and eric you guys met in uh, 1971 at the university of pennsylvania wow when you, when you put it like that it seems so long <laughs> <laughs> eric did you discover reggae and jamaican music from rob or did you independently discover reggae I knew about it. Um, it's funny. The first time I ever heard the word reggae was um, probably 1970, 1970. There was a, a British band called The Move. And um, one, their, one of their albums, my favorite of their albums called Shazam, has all these, these bizarre little audio tidbits. Um, and one of them is uh, they're just interviewing people on the street. And he's talking to some guy. And he asks him, uh, what kind of music do you like? Reggae. What? Reggae. That's my music. And that's the first time I ever heard the word reggae. And around the same time, I went to Toronto with my parents to visit my aunt. And we were in a store in Yorkville, which at the time was like the, the new the new place for hippies, which is now crazily gentrified. But I remember seeing a little poster for a reggae band. So this is the first time I saw the word reggae in, in, uh, in, uh, in writing. Um, and then... The first time I I remember hearing it, I guess Rob must have turned me onto it early on. But there was I was I was uh, I had a girlfriend who was uh, who was way into it, and she played me uh, Catch a Fire. Mm. 
which would have been 73, I guess. So that was the first time I really listened. I listened, you know, top to bottom to a, a, a reggae album and went like, oh, yeah, something going on here. So I know, Rob, I'm not sure if I can't remember if you were in these bands or not, Eric, but I know that you, Rob, you were in the band Wax and then Baby Grand. Mm-hmm. Baby Grand had a song called Lady of My Dreams that had a little bit of a reggae element. Was that the first or really only pre-Hooters time where you were introducing that music into your 70s bands? I think so. Eric was involved in Baby Grand as well. And okay. there was an earlier version of that song that was several versions, as is our it's our pattern. Um, sometimes we go too far, but whatever, we tend to keep tinkering with things. And uh, yeah, I wanted to bring that influence in. The band was much more of a prog uh, rocking kind of vehicle. So it wasn't quite the um, the thing. In fact, it really led to when we put the Hooters together, it was clearly that was part of what was happening. But yeah, Eric, you can help me. I think that was about the only reggae tune we did. Yep. And that's loosely speaking, you know, I mean, Steely Dan had, you know, Haitian divorce and all of that. It was starting to bubble under, but no, we weren't really playing that much in that group. Yeah, I think it, I think Lady of My Dreams, which was another song before that, it was almost yes. almost 20, and it wasn't broken, and you fixed it. <laughs> but right. I think it was kind of more reggae, but that's just, it kind of evolved into more, yeah, more of the Steely Danny kind of a vibe than the, than the, than the authentic reggae thing. And what happened was, uh, the, we did two albums on Arista, about to do a third, We'd started touring. We weren't, you know, we thought, oh, major record deal. Our dreams are, you know, are answered. This is our, we're there. Well, kids, <laughs> it doesn't always work that way. Two records later, massively in debt, tour support, advances. The best thing, our, our uh, we had a great lawyer at the time, and his, his advice was get off the label, get dropped, <laughs> um, which was like, get dropped. We worked so hard to get signed. We want to do a third album. And they're like, no, 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 just break away, which we did eventually. Um, we tried, you know, it was an interesting band and we had some great players, but we just didn't have that that hit or that commercial success. And when the band dissolved, it kind of as the band dissolved, uh, Eric and I kind of moved to the side. We're, in, we're now into the close to 1980 and the police come out and two-tone and the specials and his he said madness and selector and were, and the writing was on the wall saw bob marley as well at the tower great concert several times saw bob in philly and it was just like eric we got to do this and eric, he was already in and and it was just we changed our whole vibe the band that was all we did so um i think the timing was such and the police being at the top of the heap also saw them in a, at the tower which is a great theater in philly and um, these bands, you know, right when they were about to break, playing at 2,500 seat before they went to, you know, bigger and better. Um, well, bigger anyway. Um, it was just seeing these bands, whether in a club or a theater, that just were doing it. And in America, yeah, I mean, you know, there was always this kind of reggae scene in England. We'd been listening to it for years on that kind of a, just as our secret passion. But it was just obvious we got to get out there and play this stuff. So seeing Madness, that Madness show you're describing, um, I don't know if it was 79 or 80, but um, was it some of it, was some of it, was it, did it give you permission or did, was seeing how this Jamaican music could be blended with rock music? Was that some of it? Absolutely. Yeah. The energy, it was just, you know, the thing about, I guess the reason reggae didn't really grab me from the beginning was just because, you know, I, I wanted more energy. I wanted more guitars. I wanted, you know, I wanted different kind of sweat. And then seeing Madness, and then we saw the Selector, 
shortly thereafter. That was what I've been looking for. That was that was the key for me to to, to bring my heart into it. And then there was also a great club um, in Philly called Emerald City. It originally it was really South Jersey, actually, right over the bridge in Jersey. It was originally called the Latin Casino, and it was kind of a Frank Sinatra, you know, casino, uh, Atlantic City kind of place. They had like those kind of acts, and then closed, and they opened it up in the eighties as this alternative. It was a great place, different rooms to just hang out, and they had you know a lot of alternative music. And we started playing there, and then we opened uh, for the English Beat and hung out with them. That was another big influence because they were to the rockier side of things. You know, they had they had Ranking Roger and Saxon, and all the, the regginess, but they also had kind of a, a more of a rock approach. Uh, we played with them. We also played with Steel Pulse, who were fantastic. Still, you know, listen to their stuff all the time, which was more kind of progressive and not just two chords and a groove, but pretty mm-hmm. complex, some of their stuff. And they were amazing live. So we started to play literally open for these bands and the audience just grew and we just kept, you know, pushing it on. And, and even it was new to people, but it started to break and uh, it was a, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was really, those were special times for us. So the, as the Hooters, the first song you wrote, even like technically before you played your first show was all you zombies. One of the first, yep, and and fighting on the same side, uh, which is a ska thing. And Eric had brought also, and key to this was the melodica. A friend of Eric said, I guess it was, well, Eric, you tell the story. It was your, yeah. So there, there was a, I had some friends who had a band that I was producing and playing on, and um, they had a melodica, and I, I played it on one of our tracks. I played that for Rob, and Rob pulls out his Augustus Pablo album. Mm-hmm. And I uh, said, well, can you, why don't you bring that over? So I did. And, and, uh, history. We were doing a demo tape. We had a place, a uh, re- little rehearsal place. It, it started with baby grand and then it morphed into the Hooters in a place called Maniunk, which is a suburb of Philly. Also now very gentrified, but back in the day, very funky. And, you know, any rock band knows it's hard to find a place where you can make noise and not get arrested or, you know, shut down. <laughs> and, and we did our first night, the cops came, but it was, uh, we wrote and, and conceived of the band and, and did some recordings in that place of Fighting on the Same Side, Man in the Street, All You Zombies, all the way back in 1980. And a friend of ours, John Sr., who's an engineer, was getting recording levels. And he said, let me hear that, that Hooter thing. And we're like, what are you talking about? And so he called it a Hooter. <laughs> and then, of course, it was a melodica. Which we now call the Hooters, and like the sidebar is no, we did not name ourselves after the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> the the restaurant didn't exist in 1980, right? No, no, no. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. No, and, and we always have to clarify. At this point, it's just we are the Hooters. It's not the Hooters, and you know, it was a musical reference, but the melodica was figured prominently on uh, fighting on the same side. That was the very first 45 we ever did. We went to a studio and recorded that with Bill Whitman who was a great engine is still a great engineer that did Cindy's album and Joe and a lot of Hooter stuff nervous night as well. So, um, we're on our way. Yeah. What was the B side on that first 45? The first, well, the B side was actually called wireless, um, is wireless. And it was a tribute to Bob Marley who had just passed away while we were, or shortly after when we recorded that. And it's actually a tribute to him. And it's kind of about, that's an interesting song. It's a tricky one. It's got a little bit of a steel pulse vibe to the arrangement. There's some interesting rhythm cuts and things. 
So fighting and uh, wireless was the first 45, which we dedicated to the memory of Bob. Yeah, which was, of course, a sad passing, but a big influence on us. Yeah. Man in the Street as well. I and mean, we had a cassette from that first demo. Uh, maybe I mentioned it. That was the first time we ever got airplay in Philly on, you know, back in the day, they would take more chances with local bands. And they played our demo of Man in the Street, um, a DJ named Michael Tierson. Uh, played in this Sky Instrumental, which we are still playing to this day. And people loved it. None, and he, did, he didn't just play it once. It went into regular rotation. Nice. And at, the, yeah. and at the time, I think that was the time we were doing a residency at, at a club called Grendel's Lair on South Street in Philadelphia. We were playing every Monday night. And that, I think that was around the time that that came out. Yep. That, that that they started playing that, and you know, the first week we Monday we played, there were fifty people. The second, there were a hundred, and within a couple of months, there was a line around the block, and it really had a lot to do with the airplay we were getting. Most people that are fans of ska have heard the original Scottalites version. It um it goes uh it's with horns though. It goes da na da 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 da. You know, so I think that's a pretty well known song. But you guys, you guys made you didn't have horns, so you used electric guitars and and. And saxophone. I did. I played a saxophone. Oh, you did, yeah, that's solo, right. And I had been playing saxophone for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean that 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 main horn line you guys do with the electric guitars. Yeah. The, in the beginning and at the end, it's one electric guitar and the sax. Nice. Ah, okay. Well, we made it. Yeah, Eric and there was another guitar player. We had two lead guitars, and uh, they did the whole thing in harmony. The horn lines in harmony. And then there's this melodica solo, a sax solo, as Eric said, and, and a guitar. And it was exactly just electrifying that beat, picked up the tempo, and we were making it our own with most of this stuff. You know, it was kind of the covers we did were were um, just ro- more rock versions uh, with guitars, exactly. Yeah, the guitars are really shreddy on that track. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we just heard it recently. You know, it's so funny because, and if people can, I guess, find it, dig it up. But it actually goes, "Man in the street, take one," and it was take one, and it's such a great performance and great recording. Um, actually, a local DJ just played it in Philly on WMMR, which is our big rock station. They still squeeze us in sometime. This late night jock, who's a who's a great friend and fan, went on and on about. Man in the Street, and I hadn't heard it on the radio. I, maybe never. I, I don't remember, but if I did, it was a long time ago. So he played it, and it was a cassette. It was literally mastered from a cassette or, onto it. We added it to a CD later on, but those cassettes held it, held up, and it sounds great. You know, we caught the performance totally live, first take, and uh, we were on our way. What real quick sidebar? What What do you guys think about the younger generation going back to? wanting things on cassette i'm for analog well it's funny you, you mentioned that because we've been digging through we're actually putting together a project i don't want to get ahead of myself but we're, we're going uh-huh. back to our roots because we wrote a new song and because we played rudy and some of the old songs at this at this recent gig a couple gigs um it spurred us into thinking that uh there's something here because you know, the people do like it either the old yeah. fans or the new ones we went back we're at eric's studio and we're both big collectors of various things and we're finding that we had tons of stuff on dat for example none of them are playing the p- players are dead or the cassettes are dead we're looking at floppy drive firewire drives i mean and and you know this and the technology is such that a lot of this stuff is not accessible anymore and I collect still a lot of vinyl and and cassettes. And I have to say, the cassettes 
still play. If you can find a boombox or a little cassette player or whatever, they're, they're holding up pretty well along with vinyl. So it's not so much an audio thing as just the ability that they still work. <laughs> and um, I like it. I think it's great that people are going back to that. Yeah. Vinyl, for sure. I mean, it's a medium. You know, listen, it's it's it takes time and effort to put a record on and take it off and all of that. But there's nothing like holding an album, yeah. looking at the liner notes. It just smells a certain way. You know, that it just for us, it's nostalgic because that's what we grew up with. Well, and also, I mean, from a vinyl standpoint, just having the artwork on the front of the album that big is so nice. It's awesome. I mean, like I said, we used to pour over the credits produced by and this and that and mastered by like what is what does that mean what's a producer what's mastering you know it's we're still all asking ourselves that what does mastering mean yeah yeah well (laughs) well, that's true (laughs) no it's great and i mean it's and it it transcends you know i mean kids you know i've got two boys in their late 20s one's 30 now and they love they're stealing all my albums as well as getting their own and they're totally into it and the bands that they go see are selling vinyl or there's downloads, you know? I mean, CDs are pretty much done in their world. I remember I used to give them CDs for Christmas or whatever, and they would rip the CD and give it back to me. It's like, thanks, Dad, here you go. (laughs) (laughs) They have no need for the plastic, you know, and really it's like save the world and we don't need more of that. So, uh, but vinyl is a different story and we hunt through the bins and we're always looking for stuff. And that, that really plays. I mean, I have all jazz and, and all my reggae stuff. It plays amazingly well, and it sounds great, especially the pressings from Jamaica. I mean, those yeah. records, there's no way to get bass <laughs> response that like the records that I, that you get from down there. I don't know how they did it, honestly, with the technology or limited you know, means of that, but man, those records are really punchy and pretty great. Yeah. Uh, I remember, like because I grew up, I was a kid in the 80s, and there's something about having like a handful of cassettes and your Walkman and you're going on whatever, whatever trip you're going on. Right. Like it's hard to like, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to like let go of that sort of feeling that you get from that. I mean, I guess, I guess kids who grow up in a later generation can think about having an iPod similarly, but the fact that you had to pick out like however many, like five or six or whatever tapes. Yeah. I think the other part of it was, and I guess the the concept still exists, but the whole idea of mixtapes and, Mm. Yeah. You know, making your own. And when, it, as Eric mentioned, with these shows we did at this club, Grendel's Lair, every Monday night, it was, they were nonstop reggae dance parties. Like we would make our own mixtapes for the breaks. We would play three or four sets a night, 45 minutes maybe, and the music never stopped. So when we took a break, we would pop in a cassette of all our favorite stuff, but dub mixes and, you know, obscure stuff. And it was nonstop for hours of this stuff. And it, it really appealed to a pretty mixed and diverse crowd. You know, we had all kinds of people coming to these shows. And I, I recently found some of the mixtapes as well. And I remember going to Jamaica and bringing music down a little, little, not even a boombox, a little, you know, cassette player and some tapes to Jamaica just to listen. Um, we were so immersed in it, but. There was that whole idea of, of, you're exactly right, carrying the cassettes around. Obviously, you could play them in your car. The Walkman was our was our thing, and also to re- document ideas and record yeah. stuff. Just playing these tapes. Um, and, you know, I guess it still exists in, in a digital form, but they were literally mixtapes, and, and they were part of our show. It was nonstop. And part of our repertoire, we had a song called Walkman. Yes, we did. Which was a great part of our show it was actually one of the high points of our show and we have a really good recording of it that's never been heard oh we're gonna have to release that then 
We're we're messing with that's <laughs> what we've been digging into. We've been listening to these. Eric did all the, the original demos. Well, some were live, and then we he got a Porter Studio that as well, which we so we started doing these four track tapes and um there's some beautiful stuff on there it was just purely you know right into the machine and pushing the technology on that little cassette <laughs> for track cassette sounds pretty good holds up okay now i was curious now michael tierson you guys mentioned him yeah yeah he's the dj that started playing man in the streets yes really took a liking to the song do you know did he have any familiarity with ska or did he just hear it and fall in love with it, your version of it? Good question. He was a very knowledgeable DJ when we both, well, Eric was from the Philly area. I moved down to go to school and then I, that's when I got introduced to him. And he was one of those encyclopedias of, of everything. He was playing great stuff way back when. So maybe he did. Um, but I think what happened actually for the band, I was talking about this club Emerald city in Jersey, we did a live radio broadcast on MMR, which was the big, still is the big rock station in Philly. And those were the days, you know, they gave us like an hour of airplane, <laughs> of airtime to do this live recording. We had a version of All You Zombies that started to get airplay. Um, but Man in the Street was, it was part of that whole scene. They were supporting us. So I don't know if he was familiar with Scott per se, knowing, Eric, or knowing uh, Michael, he probably was, because he was very knowledgeable in all his genres. But we we did feel like we were bringing this to fresh ears in a lot of these cases. You know, I mean, this was early on and a uh, bigger scene in England than in the States. So yeah, uh, maybe that's why it needs more defending over here. Sure. <laughs> I, I doubt Scott needs much defense in, in England, but who knows? I mean, I guess as a genre, it comes and goes, but, or the style, but really it's just, it is a genre. It's like saying defending the blues or, you know, yeah. Or jazz. It's, it's, it's here to stay. You know, you get together with a, with, a, with a bunch of guys and you might say, let's play it like a blues or let's play it like a reggae. Or let's play it like a ska. There's a style. That's the other thing about it for me is, I mean, we witnessed, you know, firsthand this style developing into a, a genre. And it's not that's not easy to create and do. So, yeah. uh, you know, we, we were certainly part of the we were the messengers there. But, um, yeah, Michael came along for the ride. He was a big fan. So in the um in the in the couple of years in the early eighties when you were more enmeshed in the ska creating ska songs and stuff and playing ska, did you see any other bands in the Philly area or even the larger region dabble in this music? Well, reg reggae you had the, the yeah the House of Assembly was like the yeah. authentic Jamaican reggae band in Philadelphia. Then we we did a show in um, in Richmond, Virginia, and there was a ska band there. I think they were on the bill with us. Yes, well, the, the, the good guys. The good guys, yep. And we became friends with them. Yep. Yep. And it was the same kind of a two-tone scene. You know, it was an interracial band. It was kind of the the, the black-white mixture, um, as were we, of just genres and styles and everyone, and even just in terms of how they dressed, how they looked. Yeah, that's true. That was a band that we played with. Uh, otherwise, there were, I don't remember many ska bands. Definitely reggae was, was coming along for sure. Okay, so all you zombies. This song, this song would eventually get re-released in the mid '80s um, in in a more rock form. But the very first version of this was written in uh, 1980, and uh, and as I've as I've heard you describe it in, in multiple interviews, the song just sort of just sort of came, just sort of you know these words and the songs just came to you without much explanation. But what I from what I understand, the very first line that came to you was 
all you people hide your face, all you people in the street. That's right. That's, in my recollection, that's how it was. Yep. When this, when these lines entered your head, did it mean anything to you? <laughs> Good question. We're, we're still asking that question. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I because Rob's Rob sang it. He played and sang it. I remember we were jamming. We weren't really getting anywhere, and all of a sudden, Rob plays D minor, A minor, C and G, and goes, "All you people, show your faces." I might have gone, "All you people in the street." I'm not sure, but it was we we knew we were on, we were on a ride. We were on a magic carpet ride. And so you, you changed people to zombies. Was that an immediate decision? That was the next day. So I think, Rob, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we wrote the verses that the first day when it was all you people. And uh, that, that was a yeah. whole wackadoodle thing, too. I heard this voice like Paul Robeson, you know, the great um, uh, uh, spiritual singers. I heard his voice singing, Holy Moses met the Pharaoh. And um, so we had the entire song, except it, it was all you people. We came in the next day and Rob said, it needs to be something else. And I said, yeah, what, what else should it be? And Rob said, how about all you zombies? Which was perfect. And there was a familiarity to me with that title. And, and it took me a year before I realized that it was the title of a science fiction story by Robert Heinlein. Mm. <laughs> Robert A. Heinlein, who wrote, who wrote, you know, Stranger in a Strange Land, among many others. Yeah, it was a, it was a wackadoodle time travel paradox story that I had read in seventh grade, and it took me years to find it. This was pre-internet, you know. Now you can, it's everywhere. But, uh, but uh, it was just some wacky synchronicity that Rob, who had never read, I don't think had ever read any science fiction at all, comes up with this title. It did evolve, and and really when we. People do ask, you know, what it's about. And it is one of those songs that has this this mystery. Is it religious? Is it, you know, apocalyptic? <laughs> it's a, I guess it's all of those. But it, it definitely was hooky. We played it at our very first show. And the funny thing about it, too, is, again, these early clubs, we would do, it, it was like boot camp for us. There was a club up in Levittown, which, uh, PA, which is a suburb of Philly, where our drummer and the rest of the guys of the original band really were from. And a place called Vernon's and we would play there four nights a week or five, you know, four sets a night and zombies we were playing, but we would do it early on to kind of get it out of the <laughs> way. So to speak, I clearly remember that because like it was a little bit of a head scratcher. Like we liked it, but it also seemed like let's do the weird stuff early. Cause then the people are going to want to, you know, we mixed, we also did Joe Jackson. We did some Tom Petty. We did some other rock covers to mix it in we brought the people in slowly to the to the ska and reggae stuff, and especially to the original stuff. I mean, we had fighting in zombies, but it was still like a lot of covers, etc. Um, and zombies was kind of a throwaway song. And then going back to that Emerald City broadcast, we played it live um, on the radio, and there was another disc jockey that was on more of a top forty station in Philly. And we met him somewhere, or he got in touch with us, and he said, what's that song, all you people in the street? He, he grabbed right to it. We, we still didn't know what we had, which is why sometimes you want a good producer or A&R guy or just a, an outside opinion, because it was this quirky little song, but he was like, that's the song, that's the song. And he was kind of right. That was the song. And sometimes, you know, it's right in front of you, but you don't realize it. Now, now, you've had some controversy with the song over the years, radio stations, like religious, maybe, banning the song. Yeah. Um, is it just because of 
the usage of zombie is that what um i mean because zombies now are way more ubiquitous and right. yeah. we're so everyone's so used to zombies but in the 80s i could think of like that was a little bit more subversive i, like I don't zombie know movies yeah i don't know that there was that much negative reaction in fact i i remember i interviewed with uh several christian um magazines about the song they loved it oh so they thought it was like had a religious message and and they liked the fact that it was written by two non-practicing hebrews (laughs) (laughs) well there was some did but i clearly remember some didn't i mean it was also banned on a few stations which we thought was awesome that was the height of you know excitement to be banned by whatever (laughs) whomever um there was a there was some controversy. I think it was just the religious, you know, imagery imagery and what we were trying to say or, or not. You know, um, it had this apocalyptic vibe. So there were some people. It, it didn't phase us. We took it all, and I guess yeah, maybe there were some positive responses in that world too. You know, we weren't going after those particular stations for airplay, um, <laughs> but people still ask us. You know, they want to know what it's about and. Uh, that's great when those things happen. It happens. It really was written quickly. It was one of those songs that did just drop into our laps, like uh, like the good ones rarely do. Um, but that's beautiful when it happens. Yes, I mean songwriting happens differently and with different songs. Sometimes, sometimes you have an intention, but sometimes songs just sort of fall into your brain, and you can't necessarily. It's like your subconscious is working, oh, yeah, and totally. you're just spitting out what your subconscious is telling you. So. You can't really explain an intention when a song is coming from your subconscious. Right. It's like it's like saying this child we're about to give birth to is going to be a doctor. <laughs> well, the, and the other side of it is we there were several songs that we that fall in that genre thematically, what we would call Bible stories. Um, there was some religious connotation. Satellite was one that was about inspired by you know the TV evangelist. That was more of a direct. Um, inspiration. We kind of knew what we were writing about in that case, and kind of satirically, we're still playing that one. And then, of course, Eric, with one of us talking about song dropping into your lap, what we like to call the ten-minute song. <laughs> you know, it should sound like it was written in ten minutes, even if it wasn't. But I, you know, we were working with Joan Osborne, and one day Eric came and said, "Hey, I got a song I just wrote yeah, while we were banging our heads against the wall in four, three, four way." writing committees with Joan and Rick, our chair off our producer, and in walks Eric with one of us, and the same thing. There's some mystery to that, for sure, and more religious imagery and thematic uh, concepts there. You know, we, we've kind of, we like those Bible stories. Yeah, they've been very good to us. <laughs> can, can I ask some questions about the video really quick? Where was this shot? It was shot at Hammersmith Pumping Station in London, which I guess was wasn't being used anymore it was a vacant uh, a, a vacant pumping station uh-huh. yeah we were so lucky it, it, that was our first trip overseas it was in 85 nervous night was just coming out uh it's a long story there but that was picked as the first single which is again what a crazy ride that song has and also different versions but um the idea was that i guess the u.s dollar was pretty strong versus the pound and the record company said it was actually affordable and desirable to send us to London to do a video. And we're like, okay. And the director, Donald Camel, was like a really serious, he did performance with, with Mick Jagger and some other movies. I mean, the guy was like a real, we, we've been very fortunate to work with some fantastic directors back in the day. 
And he was a film director and he, he had the vision found this. I think you're right, Eric. I, I don't, I don't think it was still active, but it was this underground pumping station and you, you feel it in the video, but you know, when you're actually in there and it's just this cold, damp, you know, big industrial space, he had the drums on this, you see it in the video, but it was this giant heavy platform they would use to raise, I guess, and, you know, move machinery. So they put the drums on that and they started spinning it around and they would lower him up and down. And it, it had this whole, it's also very vague and ambiguous what's going on, but it had the mood and, um, you know, we got lucky for sure having him and his vision because it, it, it holds up. It definitely does. Yeah. And then it has this kind of dictator looking figure in it. And then at the end, you've got him <laughs> hanging upside down. Yes. Yeah. We showed him. <laughs> you got him. Yeah. It was like a little mini epic. And, and we were, again, we were fortunate to, to do a bunch of videos in the day where they had these concepts. I guess it's not so unusual anymore, of course, but back in the day it was all new and, uh, yeah, that was a fun experience, fun trip to England. Do you guys have any idea what this first image in the video is meant to be? This guy kind of walks into a puddle and he, he has a bald head <laughs> and he, he like kind of like almost like baptizes himself and then puts yep, a hat yep. on it. And then he's in the factory. No. No, that's that's lost to whatever the director was. Yep, and the, and we can't ask him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he had a vision and um for the whole thing and this whole cast of characters, as you see, it was just a mixed bag of extras yeah. and um, yeah, pretty interesting stuff. I mean, all these, sort I grew up with all these sort of videos, you know, as a child in the eighties and, you know, all these little vignettes, just these moments stick in my mind as having like yeah. significant meaning. And at the time it really just could have been like, oh, we've got this extra, just have him, I don't know, have him do this thing. Yeah. I think you're right. I think there was a little baptizing going on and he's kind of the figure that leads you in and out of this uh, cast of characters. I don't know. I have another, I have a question. Uh, while we're on the topic of your videos from the mid eighties and we danced came out around the same time. Mm-hmm. So there at the very beginning, I think it's the very beginning. It's there's like an act. I guess there's actors playing the two of you sitting at a bench playing. They are indeed. <laughs> <laughs> And then I think it's you guys later. So is there, was there a significance or a reason behind that? Hmm. Well, first of all, we can tell you who they are because one is Rick Chertoff. Um, the big bearded guy, uh, he had, I guess he had a beard. I have to go back. Anyway, his name was Paul Prestopino. We call him Presto. He was the main tech at the record plant studio in New York where we did uh, a lot of Nervous Night and also Cindy's album and just a fantastic place. And he was like the guru guy. We used to call him Mr. Natural because he was. He's also an incredible musician, played with Peter, Paul, and Mary, and um, a lot of other like folky bands. And we just loved him. He was a, always around when we were recording. So I don't know where the idea came from, Eric. Do you? Uh, I, don't, I don't. One of us <laughs> thought of it. I, I, it was definitely. It definitely was an in-house idea. It was. It was Rob or or me that thought of it. Anyway, that's Presto in the beginning. Um, playing the mandolin, right? And he was a great mandolin player in reality. And the other guy is Rick Chertoff, who was our fantastic friend and producer um, and did Cindy's album and Jones as well as uh, Nervous Night and a bunch of stuff for the band. So we thought, let's cast those guys. I I really don't remember. might have even been the director. Uh, Let's have them in the beginning playing the intro, which we looped and extended and then Eric and I kind of take over the roles at the end. So it was like just a little visual cue. And it was fun to get Rick in there 
uh, and who's behind the scenes of a lot of our music. And then Prestopino was just, and still is, a great friend of ours and just a great tech and great musician. It might have been our little nod to, to Deliverance. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I can see that. Cue the banjos. <laughs> just the, the performance footage in this. Is, it's a, is it all just lip synced or is this an actual, like, did you guys actually get to perform? Uh, it's lip, it's lip sunk. Okay. I mean, it looks, it looks legit. Everything's mic'd up. It looks good. You know what we did? Uh, we were playing though in between. It, that was one of the, I think holds up as one of the best videos we've done. We, the, the drive-in was closed and it was like a ghost town. And then someone had this idea, a treatment, maybe it was a director to go in there. It's in a place called Exton outside Philly. And it it was like like a Twilight Zone episode. I mean, they reopened it. They got the marquee. They got the lights on, and everything kind of up and running again. Just for the video, we put out the word on the radio um, that we want volunteers to just come and you know be part of it. And boy, did they show up! In fact, they had to close it down. It was a whole scene um, in terms of just traffic jams and all that. People brought their cars and. We did play though. We we you know because it's hurry up and wait when you do these videos. You do a big scene and they change the cameras, do it again. So there was a lot of downtime and people just came and hung from the afternoon. It starts kind of late afternoon, goes into the evening, and uh, we had a little PA and we had equipment there. So in between the takes, we were actually playing um, live. You know, just kind of jamming and keeping people entertained. The video itself was yeah, we were lip syncing to the track. Gotcha. Um, but we were also playing while people were there. It was a big party. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, it was. And you feel that in the video because it was legit. And as night went on and people got into more partying mood, it it was caught. And now, you know, drive-ins like so many things are just so extinct these days that, I mean, I've had people come up and go, what, you know, kids or friends of my kids, like, what, what is that? And of course, once COVID hit, then I guess drive-ins came back into fashion. Right. But it was kind of a uh, a retro look, and now it's knocked down. It's it's a shopping center or something. I don't know. There's so many people in this video. <laughs> There's so many people there. It's incredible, and a lot of them are are still our friends. That's sick. Yeah, I think we actually had the idea for the for the drive-in when we we did an interview at a radio station in St. Louis, which was adjacent to a drive-in. Yes, you're right. That is true. And we thought, well, hey, why don't we? do a video at a drive-in. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a good director. Got lucky. Got the setting. It poured the night before. I remember it was cold and rainy and it was like, oh boy, we're in trouble. Somehow it miraculously cleared up because it was that day or never. We couldn't really reschedule the whole crew and everything that was going on. And then the day turned out to be a beautiful day and um, it was packed. It was a, it was a party. It was really, we caught something there. The Vernons and Levittown that you played at five nights a week, four sets a night. Mm-hmm. you would have sometimes have a dance or skanking contest on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear about it. Oh God. Uh, yeah, we, we had a dance contest um, to a particular song that Eric wants to re-record. <laughs> what was the song? It's called talk too much. And it was very much an English beat vibe. And um, we would just play it. At, what was it? I, we, I think we gave out prizes. Was it endurance or, or technique? It was, it, was, it, was totally, it was technique. And it was totally random. We just decided who the winner was. And usually it was just a cute girl in the front. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We would just play it for 20 minutes. And um, 
it was a goofy song, that, but it had a good beat. And people loved it. And uh, yes, the, the skanking army, they were skanking away. <laughs> and you know, Rob mentioned the d- diversity of the audience. It really was amazing because there was this whole community of Jamaicans who would drive out to Levittown to see us. And they would be skanking next to the bike, the local bikers. Yeah, it was a mixed crowd. And, and honestly, we look back and, you know, you're in the moment and you're just doing stuff that feels right. And you're, you're not really thinking much beyond that moment. And just like, wow, we're actually playing clubs and doing what we've always dreamed of doing and supporting ourselves. Um, and the, the people were just coming from kind of all the areas. Exactly. And they, they were just they were having fun. They weren't quite sure what they were hearing, but they were they were digging it. And we were we would literally write a song, play it that night, write another one, a couple of days off. Let's write some more. Try it. You know, this worked. That didn't work. Throw it in this. Take out that. It it, it was just nonstop. Um, play all night. Sleep all day. Then do it the next night. That kind of thing. Um, living and breathing it totally, and and plugging in the material as fast as we could. Okay, so you guys played um, with Cindy Lauper. You backed Cindy Lauper on her album uh, "She's So Unusual." Now, kind of tell me about this. Now, as I understand it, you guys were sort of taking a hiatus when this happened. We were, yeah. In fact, she came to see us. Well, the the quick story, somewhat quick, is Rick was Rick Chertoff, our good buddy, was assigned. He at this point he was a staff producer. He was originally a drummer in a, a college band that I had and some other bands, and then he moved on from drumming. To producing and, and quite successfully and then he was assigned to produce a solo artist named cindy lauper her band blue angel had I guess, broken up and she was assigned to do solo and he wanted to kind of have a band for her and we were playing this original version of the band was playing at the bottom line in new york he brought cindy to see us uh, and um she was kind of digging the scene as well you know she was coming more from a Punky new wave alternative version. I don't know how to describe it. She was Cindy, but she liked the ska reggae-ness of what we were doing. And we were on a hiatus. At that point, we'd been playing a couple years consistently and, and we were a little burned out. And, you know, we somehow we, we thought it was time for a break. And timing was such that Cindy, Eric, you can fill in the blanks too. But I think during this period, uh, and we eventually regrouped and did this album Memory. But before we did that, uh, Cindy came along, and that was a side project that was interesting to all of us. And she she liked that influence, and there was a lot of it on her first album. We actually recorded a version of Fighting on the Same Side with her. Oh, nice. Really? The two-tone ska thing, she was getting that as well, bringing it to her own um, filter. And again, she saw us, you know, perform it. Uh, we played the bottom line a couple times in New York, which was a big deal for us to get out of Philly and, you know, hit, hit the city, the big city. And uh, it really clicked. And then she started coming down to Philly, actually, to our place in Manioc to write and record demos for her album. Fighting on the same side, that was one of your demos you recorded with her that I assume never was released? We actually did it, recorded it with her in the studio, <clears throat> but it did not make the album. Yeah. Interesting. I wonder if there's a record. There's got to be a copy of that somewhere. Yeah, for sure. You worked with her for like, I want to say like four or five months demoing before you even went in the studio? Easily, yep. In fact, I just found all of my Porta Studio tapes from that. Oh. Yeah, we did full track demos of all that. Rick was Rick was the ringleader, uh, Rick Charles. He, you know, he had her, he had a bunch of songs 
in mind, notably, most notably, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. And we must have done, I don't know, countless demos of that song because it was kind of a punk rock song by this guy, Robert Hazard, who was kind of our competition back in the day. We did a number of shows with him and he was just straight rock and um, we were doing our thing. And then somehow it's very ironic or coincidental that it morphed from his song into our world. And after many, many tries, we kind of ended up with the version that people know, um, which is a little bored with the upbeats and kind of syncopated uh, reggae style. So we did all that. We were working on demos all through the night was another one that Rick had from the very beginning and uh, witness and money, money changes everything. Rick brought that in. Yeah. So they had a bunch of songs and then we were the hired hand, so to speak. So Witness, if you listen to Witness as it exists on the album, it actually sounds very ska. Uh, for some reason, I never really noticed that. Yeah. That's my understanding that she wrote that, right? Am I, am I right in that? I think she wrote that with, um, did she write that with um, Jules Shear? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, she wanted to be, she wanted to be involved in the writing process. And, you know, it was kind of a push and pull there because Rick, was really um, spearheading that he was leading the, the charge here with songs that they had imagined for her. Or he had imagined. And then of course, when we came in the picture musically, it started to take shape with this guy influence, not completely, but there was a fair amount on the, on the record. And she, she dug that. And like Eric said, she did fight. And I think there were other outtakes too. There were a lot of things, of course, that never saw the light of day, just little jams here and there, but that's what we were playing in our band and she uh she was a fan to your knowledge what was her familiarity with scott when you first started writing and getting together i don't know i i yeah again i think the entrance for a lot of it i don't know if it was the sky as much as the reggae but the police were the i keep coming back to them because they were to me they had their you know they were finger right on the, the sound you know it was like let's take the reggae stuff the drumming the the vocals the approaches it, it just had all those elements so i think they were leading the way commercially and then i we kind of turned her on to the two-tone stuff i'm not sure she was familiar with it or not she was coming from you know the village uh new york maybe a little cbgb's more of a, like a punk rock kind of place mm-hmm. and where where the you know it was a punky reggae party <laughs> basically so the original version of Girls Just Want to Have Fun, you were talking about Robert Hazard and the Heroes. It's like yep. a power pop song. Yep. Um, and she yeah. did not like this song at all, right? She hated it. Quote, <laughs> I, will never si- I will never sing that song, quote, unquote. That effing song. <laughs> the original kind of comes off maybe a little sexist. Is that sort of? Yeah, it's, yes. it's demeaning to women, she'd say. Yeah. Yeah, great story there. I mean, the the short story that that has become kind of a legend is that Rick Rick did have you know he found the song. It was I think it was even new to us. I mean, we knew Hazard, but it wasn't. He had some big local hits. That wasn't really one of them, at least in my on my radar. But Rick brought her down to see them um, to see Robert Hazard and his band, and they started playing it. And, and a guy with straight eighth notes, real punk rock, and a girl just want to have fun in his deep baritone. And she's like, I'm not singing that freaking song. Um, <laughs> and Rick said, you know, in this moment of incredible wisdom, something like, yeah, but in your hands, you know, if, if, if a girl sings that song and if we can find a way in to turn and twist some things around, uh, it could be anthemic. <laughs> and 
damn, he was right about that. Um, <laughs> and she, so it was a little bit of a struggle. It was a great moment of just creative friction. We did many versions of that song. Many versions. And, and, but he, she came around. I mean, he was so persistent. I, I, I'll tell you what the moment was. We came in one day and we were talking about Come On Eileen. Now, everybody, everybody loved Come On Eileen, which is one of the greatest records ever made. Rick said, came over and said, uh, well, can you sing Girls Just Want to Have Fun like Come On Eileen? Huh. Oh, are we here? And, and, um, and I took it upon myself to program a beat in my, my, my 808 drum machine like Come On Eileen. Boom, but down, boom, but down. And I picked up a guitar and I played. And uh, she started singing it. And by the end of the day, she was saying, I always wanted to sing that song. It's so empowering to women. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it happened that day. It happened, but it, I mean, that part did. She came around. I mean, you know, yes, that was. And then we added some upbeats, you know, I had this like a Farfiz or a box organ with a delay. So the reggae-ness, you know, it's not a reggae per se, but there's a, there's upbeats going around. And there's a, there's a demo of it that's a more pronounced yes uh, version of it yeah exactly and then we were doing a lot with the 808 drum machine exactly and then Eric, it was it's always been that it's been kind of a combination of my keyboards and eric's guitars and you know he has so he had the rock and riff i'm just playing the upbeats with this delay and, and it started to come together but there's there was a lot of push and pull in that and uh you know sometimes it works better than others but in this case it, it really worked and it, it did become her anthem and uh it it got it got noticed. It was it, we weren't sure where it was going. That guitar riff is so good. Thanks for playing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's 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 a keyboard solo in that song. I think everyone probably knows it by heart. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. So I read that it um you you had your Roland Juno sixty and that was the steel drum sound effect. <laughs> it was indeed. Dude, that is a crazy sound. All the patches are numbered. I think it was number seventy three or something. <laughs> There were all, on that record, it was all Juno all the time. I had just gotten it. Actually, I was playing it in the Hooters as well, early 80s. It was just the synth that came along that I could afford and play. I'm not a technical programmer, and that is one of the best keyboards ever because it's got everything right on board, as opposed to like a TX7 or some of these synths that are somewhat complicated. This had sliders and knobs. You can just twiddle. But even the presets, most of that album, at least Cindy's album, was just straight out of the box presets, and that was one of them. That steel drum thing, kind of, yeah, it just kind of happened. It was a quick one. Those swipes at the end of that solo, what is that? Um, it's there's a pitch bend, a little bender, and and then it's also there's an arpeggiator that was such a still is. In fact, Eric's got one. We were just playing it last week. Um, so the, the arpeggiator just triggers these random, you know, repeated or arpeggiated notes. And then I landed on the steel drum, and it, it, to me, it was straight out of the you know calypso, not even reggae. It was really even more calypso in my mind, going back to the early ska and mento days, whatever that stuff was. Somehow it, it spoke to me. And that very end, you hit the note, and then you just hit the pitch bend, uh -huh. the little joystick, which you can adjust for different parameters. And but it was uh, actually, I guess, it's kind of changing the filter a little bit. So whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> and. Um, it was just, I, if it wasn't one take, it was two at the most. It was really quick and spontaneous. And uh, yeah, the pitch bender, the Juno 60 is just best synth ever for that stuff anyway. The out on that solo, just that, those last three notes of the solo crack me up every time. Because it just sounds like, it just sounds like, yep, next part. <laughs> 
I love it. Well, there was a there's a cartoony element. There, there's humor in there. I know. And there was yeah, it's amazing. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Well, that whole album. I mean, I have to say, it was a work album, and Cindy's a tough taskmaster, but. She's also very funny. There's a humor. I mean, look, she's so unusual. You know, the title song, you, you hear it right away. And there was humor on that record and, and on that song. And it was fun. And that thing just kind of took it over the top, even in the ride out when we did the solo. Then it was like, yeah, let's do some more in the end. Those are all little random blips. And I'm just twiddling, you know, the joystick and knobs and things as we go in real time. And it was fun. Yeah, yeah it fit. Really fit. So time after time, this song started out faster and and more more of an overt like reggae element. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I wish we've been looking recently and even farther behind for old cassettes or Walkman's tapes or something. We wrote that in the studio, and so it was at the very end of the project. And we, you know, unlike all the demos that we've been talking about, which it was really a work record, especially girls and Eric was doing these four track demos that were really tremendous versions. Uh, time was just the last song. Rick said, "Hey, we could use one more song," and, and we actually wrote that in the studio. And um, so a demo doesn't even really exist, but it started out a little bouncier. And I was just doing these upbeats over the chorus changes. I don't have the keyboard like Eric has a guitar, but basically, time after time, time after time, we had we landed on that hook around the chords, and it was just dancey and up. Up, more up feeling and then over time it slowed down to become you know what it is uh what it, what it was and is today but just a kind of deeper slower mood i read that when you first played it for her she just started dancing in the studio yeah well she would kind of channel um yeah that's you know just kind of trance out on stuff and move around and you know it's it, again it's a while it's a while ago so it's hard to really remember except that she came in with the title, which was a movie, sci-fi movie. She got it out of the TV guide, <laughs> the late great TV guide. And I, I know that's true. And then um, then it was just a matter of singing and playing it. And we went right into the studio and just threw it up and with Bill Whitman Engineering and Eric and, and Rick Chertoff. We all just put it together. That record is the demo. I mean, that's the beautiful thing. I mean, we went right to the, to the multi-track. We were working 24-track back then. And Eric had the drum machine. We overdubbed the very simple drum part. Um, Eric, what was that? That was Anton that came in, right? Yeah, but originally we we programmed it on the Lindrum, and Anton just replaced the the kick and snare and um, side stick. Anton Fake played drums. Yeah, and it was just very sparse and basic. But yeah, it it went from up tempo to being kind of the more moody record, which really fit the vibe. And her vocal was. Same thing. If it wasn't a first take, it was one of the first. It was very early on. She sang it. And it just came together, kind of as zombies did. I mean, in terms of the writing, uh, it was a, just a quick process. In this case, we really didn't have time or budget or energy to do much more. We we were probably we were really at the end of the project and pretty exhausted, to be honest. And so she she came in with time after time. It's my understanding that it was a placeholder name that just never got changed. Yes. I, well, she came in. I found I just started singing that that time after time over those changes, little bouncier beat. And I think it, it was kind of a placeholder. You know, we weren't sure. It didn't strike us as the most original title. And there was an old is, you know, at least one well-known and maybe other songs with that title. So sometimes, you know, the title, like all you zombies felt like, OK, that's 
that's something different. Um, but time after time, was it, we were just singing it. It felt good. And yeah, it was a bit of a placeholder. And then as, as it went by, as time went on, uh, it was, we didn't replace it. You know, that was it. And so the, the original tempo got slowed down because of the, the content of her lyrics. Is that true? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I just remember sitting, we wrote it at the piano in, in the record plant, literally in the studio and just sitting at the piano, bouncing away. And then somehow it, it became this, it, it slowed down and then it went to the Juno pad, number 61 <laughs> in your songbook. Uh, these are all presets, kids. So just get your Juno and have fun. Um, <laughs> great secrets. But um, uh, once we found the pad, it, it, with the with the lindrum, this shaker kind of giving us the the time element. It was the clock ticking kind of thing. I mean, and, and even that side stick that comes in, uh, the clock ticks, all of that. Uh, the pad was the the foundation, and once we landed on that beautiful Juno pad, I mean, those are all just out of the box sounds. That just was the world. But that's one of those records that there's not a lot of development per se from verse to chorus to bridge. I mean, things happen, but that pad goes the whole way. It's just this bed um, for the whole record. And and once we found that, and and her voice and the guitars, it, it, once you know it, it came together as a foundation. Cindy singing over that that was that was just beautiful. It didn't need a lot more, and it's a pretty sparse record. And so there is no bass in the verse, right? The bass is only in the chorus. That's right. Yeah. No, it's just the low notes. The the Juno chorus was the was the trick there and and the low notes it's just there's bass but it's just these held notes but there's no bass really right the bass line enters on the course and that was it because i read her saying that um the intention of that song was to have a reggae bass line which it does that is a very reggae bass line yeah i don't know if that was the intention uh it's it's what happened i mean i remember clearly we had the record and the chorus was kind of came late in the process and the bass eric maybe that was one of the last things you can tell help, uh one of the last things we did i think I th- the guitar the guitars were the last i think and the guitars and the reggae for me i mean i again that was a synth bass um and i always heard it as as that you know it was like let's throw in a little reggae line whatever that is whatever that implies um so the, the track doesn't feel like that but the the bass definitely has that yes that melodic melodic kind of a bass thing that it has a, a voice of its own, exists separately from the rest of the track, but integrates so beautifully. Mm-hmm. I remember the first, they played me their, their first sketch of that song, and uh, I, was, I was moved to tears. It was really the first time in my life I'd heard a song, and I knew that we were going to hear it for the rest of our lives. Mm. Now, when you got brought on to this project, so Cindy's a new artist. She had a band, but she's still like, she's a new artist. You guys are like basically like an, uh, a club band at this point when you're brought on. Was the label, was the intention that this was going to be a big pop record or were they hedging their bets on it? Just like, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Good question. You know what? I don't know. And I think Rick, we were very secluded. And I think having Rick in our corner and being a, a, a great old dear friend of ours, rather than some staff producer that comes in is like, okay, guys, you know see a nine to five we lived and breathed together we became a little band which is really what rick and cindy were looking for as well we were all band guys she could have went and she could have hired studio cats as we call them and just to come in and play but the very just the creation of that whole record was again in philly with eric doing four track demos and i i don't know what the intention was 
And I remember finishing the album thinking, who's going to play this record? It's this, it's like all over the place. It opens with Money Changes Everything, which is like this punk rock song. Then you had a Prince cover. You had Girls, which didn't sound like anything else on the record. You had Time. You had All Through the Night, which is a beautiful ballad. Then you had some ska things. It was really somewhat scattered. And that's why I'm not an A&R guy. <laughs> because sure. next thing you know, she had like four. And Shebop, which had its own thing. Um, she had four top five singles on that record, but I don't know what the intention was. They obviously heard and saw her as a dynamic performer. And if you look at old videos, there's some great stuff out of, of her with Blue Angel. And she was clearly a force, you know, to be reckoned with. I mean, she was all over the stage. She was singing, dancing, jumping, yelling, you know, climbing up wherever she could, going into the audience. She had that element in the live sense. So I think making a record was really the challenge was like what what kind of artist is she going to be you know what, what, how will she be molded and and she's not easily molded into any she will not be molded she will not be molded so <laughs> it was kind of every day was a challenge you know like we land on something it felt really good and the next day she'd come in and goes no 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 it's all wrong and you know I was like okay and we just kept trying but honestly it was a testament to to everybody's um perseverance and 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 really rick in particular because rick is very laid back and we're very emotional and you know we're fighting for our territory like no it goes like this it goes like that etc and rick's just sitting there listening and going okay okay but how about this <laughs> you know how about that and uh he was really a, a great uh leader on that project and bill too on the engineering and even John Aniello, who was the assistant engineer, became became a, still was a great producer as well. Uh, we had such a great team. So the sounds on that record, the production, the performances, the music, it's all over the place. And um, she, she nailed it. Yeah, in my mind, that's the record that really, that really tied together the sort of the punk, new wave, ska, underground stuff with mainstream pop music of the 80s. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't really think of a record that bridges all of those so well and then did so commercially was so commercially successful is that particular record i mean true you know prince came from i would say a little different world and he bridged those elements to mainstream pop i'm not sure if i would really make the same claim to madonna even though she did come from the the punk underground um because you can really still hear the elements and she's so unusual they're still there yeah and let's not forget that mtv came along and all of a sudden the timing was just really, you know, the planets aligned, as, as we always say, and sometimes they don't. But in this case, she was so perfect for that medium. You know, like here's music videos and the girls and all of her videos. She was styling and, and, and directing and, and really had such an influence in those with her look, with her vibe. The visual element um, and the performance element all came together, too, so that when you heard girls and then you saw the video uh, and all the others that followed, she just ran with that. And she was, she was just, and still is, she was perfect for that because the, the, she had a lot of references in the visual, in the visual side, as well as, you know, the, the audio and musical, and they all came together for an artist like her. And, and for us, you know I mean? It was the 80 sounds. We had our, we, we had our bag, but she opened it up to a, yeah, a very wide palette. I want to connect this to your your release of Amore. Mm. So, because it's kind of around the same time, 
right after it was sort of it was kind of our next step you know we 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 started playing again uh after we finished that that album we kind of so you kind of got reinvigorated or you just had enough of a break to give it another go we got reinvigorated we made some changes in the band and um started doing some ironically we we got a couple of players from robert hazard robert hazard fired his band <laughs> and we decided to work together and we got two players that they were our competition and now we they, they defected and they came and joined us <laughs> fire sale john, one, yeah one of whom john Louie, has been with us ever since Sick. and then a, a, a rob miller bass player who, who came and went but he's still a friend of ours as well but yeah, we kind of reunited with some of them and then decided, hey, let's, yeah, exactly. We were re-energized, re- re- shall we say, invigorated, exactly. Now, was uh, was Amore on a uh, major or indie label? I can't recall. It was our label. We we made a label. It was totally, totally self-financed. We did it in like a month in a studio in Philadelphia, and it was awesome. Was there a point when the success of Cindy impacted your success or at least putting you on the radar of major labels? Uh, there was. Uh, in fact, we were really at this point when we, especially when we got back together and even before, even in the early days with the first version of the band, we were really kicking it in Philly, you know, a hundred miles from New York. But we, I always say we might as well have been in Montana because the record labels were like, come to New York, come to New York. And we're like, come to Philly. So, and we did go to New York a few times, had a few disastrous gigs. We had a few okay gigs. Fortunately, the bottom line was a good one, but um, they were not that interested in coming to Philly. And then after Cindy, at least as I recall, and after we did Amore, we started playing bigger clubs and kind of packing them. And finally, and with Rick really as a, uh, you know, front runner here uh, leading the way, he and some other A&R guys, I guess, came down into a club in Philly, saw the band, and, and, and we, we moved on from the indie world to, to Columbia. Rick really was our, he was our secret agent, our secret, our guardian angel. Yeah, it was tough getting down, down here, but they came. Amore, to me, musically sounds, you know, more, still similar to the uh, first version of the band. Yep. Whereas the um, Nervous Night, that's your Columbia yep. debut record does sound like a bit different at this point, like a bit like bigger. Everything sounds much bigger mm-hmm. and fuller and more like more for arenas almost. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that Rick really had, had a lot to do with that. And Bill Whitman who just recorded everything amazingly well, but you know, because when we started playing with the Hooters, it was a bit of a sacrifice uh, musically for me and Rob, because we were shredders, you know, I was a, you know, I was playing, you know, I wish I'd been getting paid by the note, (laughs) (laughs) you know, kind of solos. And I was, you know, playing my Les Paul through Marshall and it was awesome. But, you know, with the Hooters doing the ska and reggae thing, some of that had to go, you know, and, you know, same thing with Rob, who's, you know, his his brilliant piano suites and sweeping Hammond organ solos. We kind of had to, it kind of had to take a back seat for a while. And then Rick at one point said, Eric, how would you feel about turning that guitar back up? And at first I was kind of resistant. I didn't want, I didn't really want to go back to, you know, just being another rock band. Cause no, you know, we are a ska and reggae band, but um, you know, we kind of met in the middle and we, I think created something different. And that was around the same time as we brought in the mandolin and later the accordion. So we started to you know, bring in some of the, the, the folky elements as well. 
Now, when you the the version of all you zombies that's on uh, Nervous Night. No, what I read was that the thought process behind how you were going to capture that song for this record was to do a Pink Floyd The Walls version of that song. Yes, what would Roger do? What would Roger do? <laughs> no, no, absolutely, and that's you know that's you know we we spent a lot of time working on that, and um, and it paid off because when we, we played in London a couple of years later. Roger Waters came to our show and said, hi, I'm your fan. Nice. <laughs> and then he, in two years after that, he invited us to the wall. Yeah, it's been a long and winding road and uh, predating the Hooters and now and even recently kind of going back to the, the ska roots. But Rick, by the time the Columbia record, it was 85, 84, 85 after Cindy. And it was like, OK, guys, let's make. I, you said it, it, a bigger, fuller sound and definitely a, a more, I don't want to say mainstream, but I guess it was more of a rock sound. Um, and Zombies was a song, which we, to this day, we still toy with arrangements. There was the original 45 that was a live version. We, then we changed it for Amore. We did a, yet another version. And that, that one just kept hanging in there as this nagging song that won't, wouldn't go away. Um in a good way. And Rick said he, he heard a bigger kind of epic production. Um, I don't know if Pink Floyd was mentioned right away, but it kind of was an influence. Um, he just heard it in a different way. It still has some, some reggae-ness to it. There's still the bass line and there's some upbeats, but it's not the, the funky reggae song that it was in the early days. Um, and that one made a transition to this day that is just, that's the arrangement. You know, it's just this kind of big, heavy song um, and then it led to other things. And then we started touring overseas and the band sound, as Eric mentioned, we added, you know, accordions and penny whistles and mandolins and mandolas and uh, other instruments and sounds. That's part of the show. And uh, we do most of our touring now overseas and, and it's become a sound that just people, they get and they like it. And the ska thing is kind of full circle now because we're really, coming back around to some of that stuff and we're going to go back on tour next summer and it'll be fun to reintroduce or introduce that sound to some of the fans because they've never even really heard it, um, mm-hmm. including some of our road crew. You know, we'd be on the tour bus and they found this Emerald City recording, for example, one of our backline guys, and it's like, guys, what's this all about? Uh, but they loved it. They got it, especially in Europe, because that stuff is always more prominent you know, than it was here. But it's it's a sound that nobody really associates with us, so it'll it'll be something interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, pe- people have you know mixed ska with different sounds, or have you know had different kinds of songs that they played as well as ska. But I think like this arena rock '80s arena rock sound is not something that it seems like a, a different a different path. And, and we were never that. We never really. I mean, we we opened for some arena rock bands. And we we could pass, but that's not what we really were. Yeah, I mean, you're a very diverse band. I agree. And especially, you can really see that in, in the instrumentations that you play with. That definitely is, a, is an indicator of your eclecticness as a musician and songwriters. But in defense of ska, <laughs> as you're saying, it's kind of true. There's not, there, it never did get to the mainstream arena stage that I can think of. I mean, there were, and I think like another, I think we played with Fishbone. We played with some of those songs. Sublime, you know, there's been bands along the way that have had their, their finger on it. No, no doubt. Definitely. No doubt. No doubt. 
for sure. But, you know, it, it never really entered. And, so, and it's interesting. I don't know why it, it doesn't lend itself to that. It's very danceable. It's very musical. It's, you know, it's got all the elements, but uh, it's true. I mean, it's not something that um, has kind of crossed into that, the arena, so to speak. I, I'm not sure. So in the mid 80s, you have um, All You Zombies and We Danced, Day by Day, Where Do the Children Go? What song in that time period was the biggest hit? Uh, Chart-wise, I think Day by Day, actually. Day by Day was the biggest charting hit at the time? Yep. We didn't really have charting hits. It's, it's strange. We've, we've played, we keep thinking we've just forced these songs down throats <laughs> <laughs> and the ears of our audience because they weren't, like And We Dance, to me, I mean, that's just a top 40 hit. We close the shows with that. It's a rock and it's a, just a great pop song. It just is, um, in all honesty. But it wasn't a hit. And I don't even think Day by Day was a top 10 hit. The album went double platinum. You know, it was back in what they called AOR, album-oriented radio, and it was FM stations. But we weren't getting top 40 airplay. Um, and to this day, like on Sirius XM, they have their 80s channel. And... We don't get airplay on that channel either, and mainly because I guess we didn't have those hits. But everybody knows them, and we've been playing them for decades. And you know, no hard feelings. But hey, where where were they when we, you know, could have used it? <laughs> yeah. But you know, we sold albums and we sold tickets, and I think the that's the other side of it is from the very beginning and until the very end, it, it was and is a live band. I mean, the recordings are one thing, but the shows are something else, and. Even the even the, the the recordings, we zombies we play pretty much note for note. But the other songs have really evolved and changed, um, and it's a it is a live band, and it's always been a live band. That was kind of the concept from the beginning. After Baby Grand with a couple studio albums that just never really went anywhere. In fact, we just clearly made a decision not even to record for a while, just go out and play and write and and try to build up a sound. And all the early 45s and through Mori was just self, you know, DIY, self-financed indie records. That's where we were going. That's what was happening in Philly and a lot of places. And, and that was the path. And when we finally went back to the rec- major labels, the more corporate side of things, it, 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 the sound changed. But our attitude never changed. And unfortunately, with Rick, it didn't have to because we had our, as Eric said, we had our, our you know, secret agent in there to... Uh, it kind of shield us from the the suits, as it were, um, and maybe that was you know to our uh, detriment too. Sometimes I don't know. I uh, I read in like a like a like a Google or Yahoo group. So if you remember the show, um, September '85, Hooters opened for Cindy Lauper at Man Music Center, and I think I think that's in Philly. I'm not sure. Yes. Yep. Yes. Do you remember this? Because a couple details from that show, Rob. You sang time after time with her on stage. I did. And then the band and Cindy performed fighting on the same side together. Wow. wow. <laughs> that was a we both, wow. We both wowed. <laughs> I, I, um, could be. I don't remember. I mean, we did play it with her. We did, as Merrick mentioned, as Eric said before, we, we recorded it. We were hoping it would have been awesome if that had been on our album. Um, but I don't remember that, but we could have. We opened for her at the Man. It's a shed. It's a big outdoor um, kind of amphitheater. It's still there, a beautiful place. And that was a, that was really, a, we played there a number of times. Um, we played there with In Excess. And I 
think I want to say the B-52s. I could be wrong. The Go-Go's. Uh, the Go-Go's, yes. Oh, I, oh, you know what? We also did play. We played with the B-52s. I think so. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it definitely played with Cindy, though, because yeah. we opened and then we jammed with her. And, and uh, yes, that was really a yeah, fun game. We were all we were reunited at that point. Yeah, so time after time, we forgot to mention this during the discussion about the song, but Rob, you're on the recording, right, as backing vocal? I am, <laughs> yeah. That was another placekeeper. Um, that we just went so fast that I was singing the harmony uh, on the chorus, and um, I figured, well, they'll get the real singers in at some point, because she was, I mean, she's such an awesome singer. And vocally, although we, we were doing some backgrounds, and obviously on the demos, we did a lot of... Uh, harmonizing uh, with her and on that one it just kind of came as a reference part as really most of that record was until we got to the final you know fine tuning of it but um we were singing and I, and and she's she wanted to keep it because my voice is kind of a i'm just a rough rock singer i'm not cindy or who is but um she liked the sound of it and she kept it so that was all ref reference stuff nice so 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 you can't so you can remember the show um you do remember playing time after time on stage. Did that happen very often? No, I, I think that might have been. Well, I've sung it with her in a number of shows. I think that was the only time we opened for her, Eric. Do you remember? I don't. That was, but then didn't we do that show on Chestnut Street where the, those pictures come from? Didn't she play it? Oh, oh no, no, no. We played at um at Temple University. Right. Yes. We did a show. But uh, was that our show, or do we I sit in? I think we sat in with her. I think it was her show. Yeah, it was her show. There's some pictures, but I have some pictures from that uh, from the um, Man Music Center as well. We, yeah, we did. A, we have done a few things, but I think that was the only time the Hooters really shared a stage with her. Um, but over the years, you know, we've we've definitely interacted um, and sat in, etc. Yeah, it's been it's been cool to like watch some of the um, later later footage. You know, whether it's like late '80s or '90s or whatever, and she really brings in a lot of like reggae and ska and stuff into her songs and she redoes some of these songs in those vein in that in that vein yeah yeah i think she did girl another version of girl some other things exactly she was a fan i don't know if we introduced it to her or not certainly some of the ska stuff we were deep into that and i think we were you know early on because it does go way back into our you know some of the clubs and and that we were going to and the records we were listening to um but she yeah, she picked up on it, and she 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 was a fan for sure. There, we actually recorded a version of that with Sly and Robbie. Really? Yeah. When was this? This was while we were making the re- the record. We actually flew them in from Jamaica to have them play, and girls just want to have fun. We just thought that they were going to bring that magic thing that they that they have into it, and you know, we it would make it the real authentic ska reggae thing. And um, uh, Robbie's bass hadn't made it. So he played my bass. He played on my precision bass, which I still have. And we did actually record a version of it, and it just never caught fire. Wow. That is true. It came in. We were just like, wow. I mean, these were already idols of ours. I mean, it, it was. we were going for very something very authentic and went to some trouble and expense to, to make that happen. And unfortunately, it, it just didn't. It, you know, they weren't. It it wasn't you know you can tell when it's grooving or when it's not. They weren't feeling it. We weren't. Cindy was kind of in the middle of it, and uh, you know we spent an afternoon. It was thrilled to meet them and kind of jam. Um, in fact, I remember they walked in and 
Um, Eric, do you, if you remember, we were we were big fans of Ijar Man. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Ijar Man records, but um, Ijar Man was a solo artist. I think he was on Island, and they're beautiful, beautiful records. Be- just fantastic reggae and beyond. Very just long these hymnal tracks, and so we were playing. We were listening to that. We were listening to Linton Quezzy Johnson. We were, a lot of the British stuff, the Jamaican stuff, and we started. Uh, jamming on I Man and with Sly and Robbie and I was like in heaven this is like you know put the headphones on and there they are and you know it was kind of trying to get some momentum but as far as a feel for girls it was the whole way that was a work song it just never came easily and it didn't come easily that day we we you know we cut some tracks they came and went and it just wasn't meant to be were they just there for the one day yeah they flew out the next day, and uh, we we were playing this I John Man thing, which had this beautiful arpeggiated guitar thing and this great organ thing, and and when we, you know, we were playing it, then they started playing, and when when it, I think when when we stopped, they said, "That's really nice. What is that?" <laughs> yeah, well, they, you know, they didn't play on everything. <laughs> yeah, but just about. No, they played on that. They did play on that. I think they did. Yeah, they definitely I did. They... I just think they play on everything, so it's kind of like. Yeah. I mean, I forget half the things I've played on. Sure. Now I'm just going to be thinking about this alternative universe where uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun was played by uh, Sly and Robbie. There, have to, there has to be. I don't have tapes of that. Do you, Eric? I don't. I don't. Uh, That's something that, that must exist somewhere. I think that was a mercy erasure. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Scott. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Scott, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigong, leaving you by saying Ska now more than ever. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.